Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we feature John Stott. Born in 1921, he was well known throughout the world for his writings and godly influence in the global church. He founded Langham Partnership in response to the growing needs he heard from churches and pastors in the majority world. He leaves behind a legacy that continues to expand through the power of God's Word, carried by scholars and pastors equipped by Langham to preach the transforming truths of the Bible. Stott says that the central message of the Gospel is not the teachings of Jesus, but Jesus Himself, the human, divine figure. He is always bringing people back to the concrete reality of Jesus' life and sacrifice. Today's message is Daily Grace. One of the most crucial questions for all of us is how we regard time. Time and our attitude to time influences our whole mentality. I want to give you some examples. There are some people who live only for yesterday. They tend to be older people. Their life is one long dream of the good old days. They can survive into the future only on their memories of the past. They pore over family photograph albums. They keep indulging in rather sentimental reminiscences. Their favorite pastime, if I may put it like that, is pastime. There are other people who live only for tomorrow. They tend to be young people who are standing at the threshold of life. They peer excitedly into the future as it seems to beckon them. They're full of optimism, full of confidence, full of courage, and they simply can't wait to get going. They're living for tomorrow. And then thirdly, there are others who live only for today. Whether old or young, these people tend to be materialists and hedonists. Neither memories of the past nor hopes for the future are of great importance to them. It's the pleasures of the present that engross their minds. Let us eat and drink is their motto, for tomorrow we die. I hope I don't need to tell anybody here that Christians don't belong to any of those three categories. We should be living neither for the past, nor for the future, nor only in the present. Instead, Christians are called to live today, day by day, in the light of the past that is remembered and the future that is anticipated. One of the many characteristics of Christians is that we're conscious of the passage of time. We believe that God has placed us deliberately in a time-space continuum. The God of the Bible, the God I trust you believe in as I do, is the God of history. He has created a historical order 
He has made us the heirs of a history that is past and the makers of the history that is to come. He intends us to remember the past, to prepare for the future, and to live day by day by day by day in the light of both. That is true for us historically as we look back to the first coming of Jesus and on to the second coming of Jesus and live today in the light of the two comings. It's true not only historically, it's true personally that we look back to our conversion when Jesus Christ laid hold of us and we look on to the consummation when Jesus Christ will perfect us. And a realization that we are living in between times has a profound effect upon us as we live today. That's going to be our theme for six weeks, and we begin with daily grace. That is the concept that day by day by day we are utterly dependent upon the grace of God physically and spiritually. Physically, our Lord taught us to pray, give us today our daily bread. Not our bread for the day after tomorrow or the day after that, but daily dependence, physical dependence upon our sustainer and our father. It's spiritually too, we come every day to the throne of grace, according to Hebrews, that we may find grace to help in time of need. Daily grace, daily dependence upon grace. With that introduction, I ask you to turn to the text. Lamentations is not a book from which many sermons are preached. But these words in chapter 3 shine out like jewels in the midst of this book. And uh, the passage we're going to look at really is verses 17 to 24. But uh, before we do so, I want to set the scene. And we look first at the grievous sufferings of Jerusalem. The Book of Lamentations is a very ancient poem known as a dirge. It's an anonymous lament or dirge although it has been attributed by both Jewish and Christian tradition for many centuries to Jeremiah. But though its author is uncertain, its historical background is not. It is absolutely obvious that it was written in the year 587 BC, when, after the long siege of Jerusalem, the city was captured and devastated by the Babylonian army. Lamentations belongs to the aftermath of that overwhelming national calamity. Now, Jeremiah, or whoever the prophet was, gives a vivid description in the early chapters of what he sees around him when the Babylonians have finished their desecrating work. The city walls have been torn down and the buildings are in ruins. The streets of the city that were once thronged with men, women, and children are now deserted. Most of the inhabitants have been taken into exile. There is only a tiny handful of survivors, and they are destitute 
so hungry that they even resort to secret cannibalism. The city is likened to a widow, bereft of her husband and her children. She is friendless, defenseless, helpless, comfortless, hopeless. And worse still, the Lord himself seems to have forsaken her. The prophet writes, he's rejected his altar, he's abandoned his sanctuary. That is, the temple in Jerusalem has been violated by the heathen. Sacrifices, festivals, Sabbaths are no longer observed. There are no more prophets either. Nobody even to expand the law. And the enemies of Israel scoff and jeer and gloat over Israel's sufferings. Is this the city, they say, which was called the perfection of beauty? Is this the city that used to be known as the joy of all the earth? The judgment of God has fallen upon his people, and the city cries out, Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Behold and see, is there any sorrow like my sorrow, which the Lord has inflicted upon me in the day of his fierce anger? All that's the first two and a half chapters of Lamentations. It's very difficult for us in 20th century Europe to enter into the sufferings of God's people on that occasion. It wasn't primarily the humiliation of national defeat by the Babylonians. It wasn't even the loss of the symbols of their nationhood, of king and princes and palace. It wasn't even their bereavement or their hunger or their homelessness. It was their apparent loss of the living God. The temple had been raised to the ground. Without temple or sacrifices or priesthood, they seemed to be without God himself. And I suggest it's only those, maybe some here, who have passed through a period of spiritual desolation, spiritual barrenness, what the old writers used to call the dark night of the soul, in which you feel that God has abandoned you, I think it's only you who can begin to enter into the depths of Israel's suffering at that time. Now the prophet tells us that he shared in the sufferings of his people. Now you have the Bible open. Glance, if you will, at the beginning of chapter 3. He says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his anger. Previously, the speaker has been a she, Jerusalem, personified as a forlorn widow. But now the speaker changes. I am the man. And it seems to be the prophet introducing himself into the story. He says that he has seen affliction under the rod of God's anger. He says in verses 2 and 3 that he feels that God has driven him into the darkness and turned his hand against him. He describes in verse 4 how his flesh is decaying and his bones are broken. He goes on in a series of vivid pictures to liken himself in verse 5 to a city besieged and surrounded. In verse 6 to the dead who dwell in darkness. In verse 7 to a prisoner who's walled up and in heavy chains. And in verse 9 to a traveler who's been halted by a roadblock. 
And in verses 10 to 13, he likens God to a wild animal who has torn him in pieces and to an archer who is practicing using him as a target. He's become the laughing stock of people who ridicule him in their songs. Do you begin to feel the tone of lamentations? It is a lament. It is a dirge. Not just this devastation of a material nature. Not just the hunger and the bereavement, the loss of loved ones in the war. But this sense that God has forsaken his people. Where is God now? And in the middle of Lamentations, there comes an abrupt and glorious change. As we move from the grievous sufferings of Jerusalem to the steadfast love of the Lord. Let me read to you again now from verse uh, 17. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. I say, gone is my glory. Perhaps a reference to the Shekinah glory that was to be seen in the inner sanctuary of the temple. Gone is my expectation from Yahweh. Remember my affliction and my bitterness, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually thinks of it and is bowed down within me. But one of those great adversities in the scriptures, but this I call to mind. And therefore I have hope the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, and so on. Now notice in verse 22 and 23, he uses three words, steadfast love, mercy, and faithfulness. And all three refer to the covenant of God, the covenant that he made with Israel, and they speak of God's fidelity, his steadfast faithfulness to his covenant. I'm sure all of us know and it's an essential thing we should know because we shall never understand the Bible without it, that God entered into a binding agreement with his people by which he pledged that he would be their God and that he would make them his people. And that covenant that God made with Israel and now makes with us the new Israel through Christ, it is central to any understanding of the message of the Bible. Well, God first made it with Abraham 4,000 years ago, promising to bless him and his posterity after him. He renewed it with Isaac and with Jacob. And it was in fulfillment of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that God rescued his people from their bondage in Egypt. And then at Sinai, through Moses, he renewed the covenant again and gave them the law obedience to which was required from his covenant people. And then <clears throat> he renewed it yet again with Joshua, just as the people entered the promised land. And all through the Old Testament, the prophets kept reminding Israel, God was their covenant God. They were his covenant people. God had bound himself to them by his covenant and his covenant love and fidelity. 
Now we need to understand this further thing. The divine covenant is not like human contracts. The contracts of men are drawn up between equals, each party binding the other party by the terms that he or she lays down. But God's covenant is a covenant of grace. Israel had no rights at all to lay down terms upon which they were prepared to take God as their God. No, God took the initiative in his grace, in his undeserved favor and love. God promised to be their God. God laid down the terms in his law upon which he was prepared to be their God and make them his people. Now, it's all that great theology of the Old Testament that the prophet called to mind in the depths of his calamity. This I call to mind, the steadfast love, the covenant love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies, his covenant mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is his faithfulness, his covenant faithfulness to his promises. Now, it's very important for us to understand that nothing had changed in his external situation. Around him still there was nothing but devastation. <clears throat> the walls of the city were still broken down, the streets were empty, the buildings were in ruins. Nothing had changed outside. Within him too there were doubts and fears, his soul was bereft of peace. What had changed was that he remembered God and the covenant of God and the character of God who is faithful to his covenant. And he knew that it is only in God that he could find security for God is the same and he never changes. His covenant is an everlasting covenant. His steadfast love never ceases. His mercies are new and his faithfulness great. Now, brother and sister in Christ, <clears throat> do you understand that we today, at the end of July in 1982, of beneficiaries of this same covenant that God first made with Abraham 4,000 years ago. Jesus, it's true, referred to it as a new covenant because there are some terms of it that we don't need to stay on now which are new and of course it's been ratified not by the blood of animal sacrifices but by his own blood. He spoke of his blood as the blood of the new covenant shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. But it's the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And by this everlasting covenant, God has bound us to himself. God says to us this morning, I am your God and you shall be my people. I will put my spirit within you and I will write my law in your hearts. You shall all know me from the least unto, of you unto the greatest of you because I will forgive your iniquities and your sins I will remember no more and I will never leave you and never forsake you. Behold, I'm with you all the days even unto the end of the world. My mercies to you are new every morning. My faithfulness will never come to an end. And one of the major meanings of the Lord's Supper 
is that it is a covenant meal in which we remember his promises and lay hold of them again because the blood of the covenant is symbolized in the wine of communion. So that is the second thing. We saw first something of the grievous sufferings of Israel and Jerusalem and then something of the steadfast love of the Lord to his covenant. Now thirdly, we need to look for a few moments at the necessary response of God's people. That is, we have to remember this covenant. It scarcely benefits us if we do not constantly call it to mind. Did you notice as it was read through the contrast between verse 20 and verse 21? Let me read them again. See if you can spot the contrast as I read them. Lamentations 3, 20 and 21. My soul continually thinks of it, that is the bitterness of my affliction, and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Now both those verses refer to the mind. They refer to the process of thinking. Verse 20, my soul continually thinks of it. Verse 21, this I call to mind. Both refer to the thought processes of our mind. But what the prophet was thinking about and the consequences that follow from what he was thinking about are radically different. In verse 20 he says he's continually thinking about his afflictions, thinking about the bitterness of this catastrophe that has engulfed him. And as a result, my soul is bowed down, he is in deep depression. But in verse 21 he changes what is in his mind. He turns from introspection, concentrating on his own afflictions, and says, I call to mind this, the steadfast love of the Lord, and therefore I have hope. You see then again, nothing had changed around him, the city, the walls, still no temple, no altar, no sacrifices, no food, nothing had changed except what was occupying his mind. So what we think about is of immense importance. When we think about ourselves introspectively and are taken up with our own troubles and our own afflictions, the result is bound to be depression, if not despair. But when we begin to turn our minds away from ourselves to God and to the steadfast love of God, our despair turns into hope. Therefore I have hope. It's very important what we think about. Now that doesn't mean that we blind ourselves to the realities of our situation. I say again the situation hasn't changed. The devastation is still there. Christians are not ostriches. What changes is this, that in the midst of our affliction we deliberately and purposefully call to mind the covenant of God and the covenant love of God. Now, dear friend, how does that speak to you this morning? What problem faces you? What trial and tribulation has overtaken you? Are you in some situation of great calamity? Let me suggest what it might be or some of the things it might be. 
Is it for somebody here moral failure? That as you come to church this morning, your heart is bowed down with guilt and shame? Wonder if God could ever forgive and restore you? You're in despair. You wonder maybe if you've committed the unforgivable sin. You need to call this to mind. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Or maybe for somebody here it's sickness. The clouds are gathering on the horizon. Or maybe it's depression, spiritual or mental depression, and the spiritual darkness that this brings. Now I know the difficulty of having control of our thoughts, but seek to call this to mind. Get your friends to pray for you that you may be enabled to call this to mind. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Or maybe there is somebody here who has been frustrated in love. Or even after a love affair have now been jilted in love. Or maybe your marriage is falling apart. And your heart in church this morning is wounded and bleeding because of this sense of rejection by some human being. I beg you to remember it isn't God who has rejected you. God jilts nobody. Call this to mind. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Or maybe there's somebody here who is bereaved or unemployed, which you know is another kind of bereavement, the loss of a job rather than the loss of a loved one, and that terrible declaration of being redundant, and you feel disorientated and lost. Or maybe it's that you've lost the sunshine of the presence of the living God, and you are in the dark night of the soul. I tell you again, there is only one remedy, if only by God's grace you can lay hold of it, and it is to call this to mind. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Well, whatever it is, whatever your calamity may be, I beg you, don't allow yourself to become preoccupied with your own afflictions. Don't wallow in self-pity, tempting as it is. Don't turn in bitterness against God. Instead, remember the covenant of God and the fidelity of God to his covenant. And I finish on this note, the day-by-day note. Wise is the Christian man or woman who calls this to mind every day. Because his mercies are new every morning. And therefore every morning we need to recall them and to lay hold of them and to rest in them. Try to make it the first thing when you 
get up, maybe just swing your legs out of bed, sit on the edge of bed of the bed, greet the Holy Trinity. I love to do that every morning. I say good morning to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I remember the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new this morning. Great is his faithfulness. And it's only when we call to mind the past, the covenant God made with us in Christ, the future that God will be faithful to his covenant forever, that in the light of the past and the future we live day by day, by day, by day, by day, in the grace of our covenant God. Let us pray. We spend a few moments in quiet and bring to God our need, our very personal need. Maybe nobody knows it but you, whether failure or sickness or depression or bereavement or unemployment or whatever it is, bring it to him, your covenant God, and rest in his steadfast love. Our Heavenly Father, we worship you in great humility. We call to mind that your love is steadfast, your mercies are new, your faithfulness is great. And even in the midst of darkness, help us to call this constantly to mind and therefore to have hope. We ask it for ourselves and for one another. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to John Stott. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.